0: Turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If this is your first week here or you've been gone for a while, uh, I would encourage you to continue to come back because we have just started a new book together. The book of 2 Corinthians we're going to be studying line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, all the way through till uh, the month of June I believe. Uh, we're going to go through every chapter of Second Corinthians, this letter of Paul. In July 2007, I woke up in Zimbabwe with the rest of my mission team. And uh, we had spent an entire summer in a neighboring country, a little sliver in Africa called Malawi. And by day, we had been working with villagers to construct a dam And by afternoon and night, we had been going home to home, proclaiming proclaiming the gospel and making disciples of those who believed. Tired, sunburned, with a a whole summer's worth of beard, I was ready uh, to make my way home, though. I was supposed to fly out of Zimbabwe, through London, and back to North Carolina. And so we'd spent almost the entire previous day driving across Malawi and then trying to cross the border station in Mozambique and then driving across Mozambique and then into Zimbabwe. And we'd stayed in a hostel that was just outside of the city. And of our team of 12, 11 of us were flying out the next day. One of us, however, was flying out that day. Me. So you can understand why uh, when... Uh, We were getting up. I was a little bit anxious as my teammates were taking a long time to get all of their things collected so that we could all load into the safari vehicle so that they could get me to the airport on time. And you can understand why I was even more anxious whenever on the way, a corrupt policeman pulled us over and would not let us pass until we had bribed them with cash. We got closer to the city and our driver... It was becoming apparent that we were not going to make it on time. He calls one of his friends. We pull over to the side of the road. They throw me and my luggage into the back of this puny little sedan, and we go zooming up to the airport. Pull into the parking lot, run through the door, get to the counter. Turns out the airplane is still there. It's on the ramp, waiting to take off. I've missed my flight. Here I was, 20 years old, no money. No phone, no home, stuck in Zimbabwe. No idea what to do. And I'm sure we could spend, if we wanted to, we could go all around the room and probably all of us have some kind of horror story about air travel, right? Maybe some sleepless night you had to spend in the airport because your flight got canceled or lost baggage or uh, things being canceled, lost luggage. When it comes to air travel, plans are always subject to change. Isn't that the nice word they use for it? Right? (laughs) Plans are always subject to change. Well, if you've read the book of Acts, they didn't have air travel back then. But as far as Paul's journeys go, you know that Paul's missionary journeys, his itinerary was always subject to change. If you were to flip back to 1 Corinthians, you'd read in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians that his original plan, he was ministering in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, and Corinth is at the tip end of Greece, just across the Mediterranean Sea. His original plan was he was going to travel by land from Ephesus through Macedonia and then southward to Corinth. However, Paul tells us in this letter this morning, he became so anxious about all the issues and the problems that were going on in Corinth, he had a mind to change his itinerary and to sail instead directly to Corinth, deal with the issues there, travel north into Macedonia, come back through Corinth, make sure there weren't any more problems, and then to sail all the way across the Mediterranean eastward to Judea. As we'll see this morning, Paul ended up sticking with his original plan. And so the Corinthians begin to wonder with Paul, what is up with all this yes and no? One day he's coming, the next day he's not coming. He's going, he's not going. Maybe Paul's afraid. Maybe Paul's not this grand apostle that we thought he was. Maybe Paul's not all he's cracked up to be. And Paul begins to realize that even in his travel arrangements, the gospel itself is at stake. So this morning, in the second half of Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is going to use his, of all things, travel plans to magnify and glorify and exalt our promise-keeping God. So if you turn to First Corinthians, let's stand together as the Spirit presses into our hearts the promises of God through Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. Second Corinthians chapter one, beginning in verse twelve. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. That we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. And supremely so toward you. For we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge. And I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge (coughs) us. That on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this. I wanted to come to you first. So that you might have a second experience of grace, I wanted to visit you on my way back to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put His seal on us, and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Let's pray. God, we come as people who trust that you are a God who is faithful. A God who keeps your word. And so now may your word by your spirit show us the beauty of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning as Paul explains to us of all things, his travel plans. His travel plans, folks. He's going to use his travel plans to demonstrate how Christians operate totally different from the rest of the world. And at the center of our passage is in verse 18, this statement, God is faithful. God is faithful. If that's true, if we believe that, then it's going to have to shape our conduct, our words, and our attitude. So let's think about that this morning. Our conduct, our words, and our attitude. Number one, Paul calls us to do this. Conduct yourselves with simplicity and godly sincerity. Conduct yourselves with simplicity and godly sincerity. Look at verse 12 again with me. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. Did you hear it there, the contrast that he makes? He says, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. You see, when we look at the world for advice... For wisdom and how to conduct yourself in the world. The world says the best way to operate is to hide your motives. Be two-faced with other people. Act with hidden agenda. Have ulterior motives. Help others when it really actually helps you. Make promises with your fingers crossed. Treat life you can see life kind of like a giant chess match where what you're doing is really just you're three or four moves ahead of everyone else. Earthly wisdom teaches us how to become the worst kind of politicians in our daily lives. Our lives become very complex when we operate according to the world's standards and the wisdom of the world because it becomes this rat's nest of lies and deceit and hidden agenda and ulterior motives. But Paul says that's not how we operated because the grace of God summons us to a life where we simply seek to do what is right. And there's such simplicity when we choose to just trust and obey. Simplicity and godly sincerity is the opposite of the complexity of the hidden motives that we often see in the people in the world. Paul isn't changing his travel plans because he's got some kind of hidden agenda. There's something lurking under the surface he's not telling the church about. No, he's not being political. He's simply doing what he thinks is the right thing for the Corinthian church. And we'll see that as we get to the end of the chapter. Plain and simple. He says, verse 13, I'm not trying to trick you. What you are reading in this letter is what we are writing to you. I'm not speaking in code. I'm not hiding things. I'm not couching things in special terms you don't understand what I'm trying to say. He says, what I'm writing to you is what you're reading. And what you're reading and understanding is what I'm meaning to say. Conduct yourselves with simplicity and godly sincerity. You know, if your motives don't match up with your actions, other people may not recognize it, especially not right away. But you know what does usually? Your conscience. Your conscience, that thing inside of you that knows whether what you're doing matches up with what's in your heart. Paul says, "How's your conscience been lately?" Think back to this past week and the the actions that you've done, the way you've treated other people, how you've acted in your relationships. Are you just treating other people like pawns? Or are you acting towards the people in your life with godly sincerity and simplicity? Can you say with Paul, my conscience bears witness. I have no ulterior motives. I'm simply seeking to do what's right. Do you mean what you do, and do you do what you mean? Or are you a politician? Do you have hidden agendas? Are you using other people? Are you trying to manipulate others to get what you want? You know, we have so many churches filled with people who love to play politics. Church politics is an oxymoron. (laughs) Paul says we're supposed to be conducting our lives with simplicity. And yet we so often want to manipulate. We don't say what we really mean. We trick. We deceive. We hide the truth about what's in our hearts. When Christians conduct themselves according to worldly wisdom, Paul says, you are denying the grace of God. That's what he sets at odds with each other worldly wisdom and the grace of God. We don't have to connive. We don't have to scheme. We don't have to plot because we trust and believe that God has already said all things have already been worked out for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Does that describe you? If so, conduct yourself with simplicity and godly sincerity. Which brings us to our second admonition this morning. Number two, keep your word. Keep your word. Not only do we need to see how the truth of the gospel shapes the way we conduct our lives, but it should also shape what's coming out of our mouth. We need to keep our word. Paul explains in his travels that he he desperately wanted to come to Corinth. He tells the church how he had thought in his mind maybe it was better not to do what he had originally planned, but to swing through Corinth first, then go north into Macedonia, then come back south through Corinth for another time. Obviously, because he's sending this letter from Macedonia, he didn't go through with his plan. He ended up sticking with his original plan. Verse 17, he asks, Now, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Again, Paul's pointing to that worldly wisdom that keeps its promises whenever it's beneficial. Whenever it's not, it's okay. That's not how we should operate. Verse 18, he says, As surely as God is faithful... Our word to you has not been yes and no. He points to this foundational truth. The foundational nature of God is why Paul says, I keep my word. Because God is faithful. God keeps his promises. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Numbers 23:19 God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said and will he not do it? Or he or has he spoken and he will not fu- fulfill it? Or even from Nehemiah chapter 9, you guys should remember this one, and you have kept your promise for you are righteous. The very righteousness of God hangs on the fact that he keeps his word. That's how God vindicates his righteousness before all of us and before the whole world, is that he makes promises and then he keeps them. Every single one. In fact, Paul says that promise keeping is at the center of the gospel itself. Look at verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, Was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of every single promise of God. You go to the Old Testament and you read about all these things promises of God to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, his promises of forgiveness. That he's going to send salvation. That he's going to send a king. That all the nations that oppose him will be judged. That God's going to deliver his people. That he promises he's going to shepherd his people and gather them from the four corners of the earth. And he's going to care for them gently and compassionately like a shepherd with his flock. Paul says that God has kept every single promise. The yes to all of those promises is a person named Jesus Christ. This is what Paul means whenever he opens his letter to another church in Romans. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. All those promises, all the prophets in the Holy Scriptures have their, yes, their fulfillment Jesus Christ every word of scripture every promise God ever made to any human being is fulfilled God keeps his word and that's what the gospel is all about and this is the good news that Paul says me and Silas and Timothy spent a year and a half preaching to you Corinthians that God is a Word-keeping God. And that all of His promises, all of our hopes, have been directed by the promises of God onto this person, His Son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. God promised that forgiveness was going to come into the world. Paul says, we preach to you that that promise has a name. It's Jesus Christ. God promised that sin and death would no longer reign over us. And Paul says, and we preach to you that that was fulfilled and His name is Jesus Christ. God promised that the curse would be lifted, that your sins would be forgiven, that you would have victory over death in the grave. And Paul says, and we preach to you that that promise is kept and His name is Jesus Christ. The Bible promised that... God's Spirit would be poured out upon all mankind and that we would spring up to His glory and honor. And Paul says, yes, and we preach to you. That comes true in Jesus Christ. The Gospel is built upon this foundation that God is faithful. That He keeps His Word. If it is not true that God keeps every single one of His words, then the Gospel is forfeit. It's not true. The gospel is the good news that all of God's promises have been kept in Jesus Christ. Wait a second. What if the person who has been preaching to you this good news that God is a promise-keeping God and all of his promises and all of his word is kept in Jesus Christ, what if this person who's been preaching to you this message can't be trusted to keep his own word? we can't trust Paul to keep his word, why should we trust him that the gospel is true either? All of a sudden, faith in the gospel begins to waver as the messengers of that gospel prove untrustworthy. Which is why, brothers and sisters, we must be people who keep their word. Let me read to you the second half of verse 20. That is why It is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Paul says, My life, our life as Christians, is an amen to all the promises of God. Now, when somebody prays, you're not praying, you're listening, and then they finish and they say amen. Sometimes you add an amen at the end, right? Are you adding anything to that prayer? You're not. Right? You're not adding any requests or any words. You're basically saying, when you say amen, you're telling God what he said. Right? Let it be so. That's what amen means. Let it be so. So if you are a Christian this morning, your life is an amen to the promises that God has made and fulfilled all in himself and all that you're saying with your life is amen, let it be so. Let it be so. There's nothing we can add to the gospel. The yes has been spoken in Jesus Christ. But when we become people who keep our word, we proclaim over and over again to the world, let it be so. Amen. We serve and worship a word-keeping God. Let it be so. This is what it means when Paul says in other letters for us to live lives worthy of the gospel. Paul says later on that we show, we know, that we serve this kind of a God who keeps His promises because He's put His Spirit inside of us as a guarantee. Let's look look at verse 21. Verse 21. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So he says... if you have become a Christian, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Believing that God is faithful. You know that's true because God has put His Spirit inside of you. He says the Holy Spirit is a guarantee. It's a pl- the Holy Spirit is a pledge. It, it, he's, a, he's a down payment. What's a down payment? You go to a bank. You take out a loan. And then you have to make a down payment on that loan. Because when you sign on that dotted line, you're basically basically saying, I swear I'm going to pay you back. And you make that down payment as proof that you're going to keep your word. Right? I swear I'll pay you back. Okay, why don't you give me a little proof of that? You make a down payment. I'm good for it. I'm good for my promise here. Paul says, you know in your heart that God is a God who keeps His word because He's made a down payment on those promises by putting His Spirit in your heart. When you repented and you believed in Jesus, you know in your heart because something changed all of a sudden you had a desire to be with the people of God. All of a sudden those sins that seemed to hold captive on you, they they started to lose their grip and now you had a desire to obey God. And as you began to read His Word, all of a sudden the Spirit is opening your eyes to the truth that all of God's promises are true in Jesus and all you want to do is with simplicity and godly sincerity to obey and to follow Jesus. This isn't just some scholarly debate. Paul says this is experiential. You know it in your heart because the Spirit is in there saying, yes, God is faithful. Believe. Which is why, brothers and sisters, we must keep our word. We are a people who affirm that we believe and trust in a word-keeping God with everything that we are can we do that if we are people who day in and day out break our promises we say God keeps all of his promises can we really affirm that with lives filled with broken promises think about the promises that you've made in your life for a moment if you're married this morning You've made vows before God and the whole world. Promises. That's why it's so unbefitting of the church for it to be filled with adultery and fornication and divorce. Broken promises. That's not who we are. If you're a church member this morning at College Street Baptist Church, you've made promises. Uh, Did you receive a church covenant pass those out take that for a second you can see the bullet points there these are promises that you have made as a member of College Street Baptist Church just look on down through those you promise to maintain spiritual fellowship with God by regular prayer and reading of God's word teaching your children to do the same how many of us are keeping that promise on a weekly basis you promise to regularly assemble for worship services Are we keeping that promise? We promise to advance Christ's kingdom by living lives worthy of the gospel. We asked earlier, how's your conscience doing? Are you living out that life of simplicity and godly sincerity before the world? With your friends, when you're at school, with your teammates, when you're in your home, in your workplace. Would they look at you and say, yeah, that person is becoming more and more like Jesus every day. We promise to submit ourselves to each other's care and accountability. How many of us are building relationships intentionally with others in this church so that they can know our deepest suffering and hurts? And they can be holding us accountable for sins that maybe we don't recognize in our lives. How many of us are giving sacrificially of our financial resources? These are promises. Brothers and sisters, we need to be people who keep. Our word. <clears throat> think about your workplace. What regular commitments do you have? Do you think it's no big deal to show up late to work? To not keep commitments? To miss meetings? It's not that big of a deal. Do you find it easy to promise something to someone that you have no intentions of ever fulfilling? Kids, you promise to clean your room or to do other tasks around the house, and then you just somehow it doesn't get done? We ought to be people who keep our word because we serve and glorify a word keeping God. Paul has spent an entire half of a chapter explaining why his travel itinerary does not deny the truth that God is faithful. That's how intentional He is about keeping His Word in His life and defending the Gospel with His Word. How many of us are seeking to uphold the truth of the Gospel that God keeps His promises by being people who keep promises in our own lives? Paul tells the Jews in the book of Romans, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. As it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. May that never be said of any of us. So what if you or I can lay out the most beautiful demonstration of the gospel or proclaim the truths of Scripture with all elegance and persuasion if the next day people can't trust us to simply keep our word? Now, we are finite creatures. We don't have infinite knowledge and power like God does. And there will come times when we can't keep promises that we've made. And uh, in my opinion, recognition of that means that we promise less and deliver more. Better not to promise than to promise and break it later. Many of our promises are broken because we promise to do things that wasn't in our power to do in the first place. If we had a family come through, the church, come through the back and they were talking to me about the size of the church and they were just concerned, if I came to them and I said, if you join this church, I promise you by this time next year we'll have at least five more families as members of this church. I have no power to make that promise come true. And yet how many of us do those very kinds of promises where we're just trying to garner favor with others? Get the approval of others. So we want to be careful that we recognize our frame, how, how really futile we are, and how so many of our words have almost no power to accomplish anything apart from God. We need to recognize our place. It's not our job to come up with new plans. It's our job to figure out how to make our lives an amen to the plans that God already has laid out for us. And that's our third and final point from Paul this morning is we need to be humble. We need to be humble. And that's what Paul demonstrates in these last two verses. He now understands why it wasn't good for him to go to Corinth first. Why it wasn't what God wanted because it wasn't what was best for the church. Look at verse 23. But I call God to witness against me, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in the faith. Paul says, I now realize I would have betrayed a lack of humility if I'd come to you at first. Because here's Paul, proclaiming that all the promises of God are fulfilled And then saying, God has stamped his seal on our hearts with his Holy Spirit. That God is going to keep all of his promises. And I know that his spirit is at work in every single believer. But his impulse inside of him is he just wants to go to Corinth and he wants to fix all the problems. And say, no, do this, don't do that. You need to do this, don't do that. And he says, you know what? I needed to trust the spirit to do it in you without me having to come and lord it over you. I'm no one's Lord, he says. He uses this word, we are co-workers. We're co-workers, co-laborers, working together side by side for your joy. See, trusting in God to keep His word is hard. It takes humility. It takes recognizing that I cannot accomplish the fulfillment of God's promises. It requires sometimes refraining from meddling in things that we really want to get our hands into. Trusting that God's Spirit is going to do the work. I think this is perhaps the reason why so many non-Christians struggle with the gospel is because it requires this attitude of humility in our hearts. That the gospel comes to us in a complete package. That doesn't require any meddling. Doesn't require any work on our part. We have to be humble. Stand in the background. And let God do the work. Jesus is the yes to the promises of God. We are simply the amen. Let it be so, Jesus. Whatever your will, let it be so. There's nothing for us to add. Salvation is is a complete work of Jesus that we have to be humble enough to receive as the thing that God has promised to us. If you're not a Christian this morning or you're kind of exploring the faith, I would encourage you to go home, read the book of Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament. Every book of the Bible proclaims that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. But the book of Matthew does a really good job of just laying it out plain. He says, this happened to fulfill what God promised. This happened to fulfill what God promised. You realize that the thing that you need, the forgiveness that you're searching for, the sins that you know deserve the just wrath of God for all of eternity, the hope that you wish God would extend to you in some form or fashion has come in the person of Jesus Christ. It's the person who comes to realize that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life life you could never live. It's the person that reads and trusts and believes that that Jesus went and died on a cross convicted in your place. It's the person who understands that God vindicated Jesus and raised Him from the dead on the third day. It's the person that trusts that this Jesus now sits in heaven forever and offers forgiveness and mercy and grace and eternal life and even to put his own spirit inside of you. It's everyone who repents and believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior who simply replies in faith. Amen. Dear Lord, let it be. So, let's pray. God, we trust in you. You are so faithful when we remain faithless. We pray that as your Spirit confirms in our hearts, yes, God, you've kept your word, and you are continuing to keep your word, and one day Jesus is coming back as you've promised May we, in our puny little abilities, by the power of your Spirit, live lives worthy of the gospel. Help us to be faithful, promise keepers, conducting our lives with simplicity and godly sincerity. Help us to be humble, willing to admit when we have been wrong and we haven't kept our word, asking for forgiveness. God, we pray, may the church of God be a place known for people who trust in a God keeping a word keeping God and are seeking with all their power to be a word keeping people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.